And for a time of reflection this afternoon, we want to turn to Galatians chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 11 to verse 21. Galatians chapter 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So we're on the theme, how do we retain the truth of the gospel? Verse 5, or operating verse. And you'll notice the phrase, again, recurs in our text, the truth of the gospel. Uh, so we retain the truth of the gospel and this is our point this afternoon. This is our one point this afternoon. We retain the truth of the gospel by censoring conduct that undermines the gospel. Paul says here concerning Peter, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Paul knew that as an elder, as an apostle at the church at Jerusalem, Peter believed in the truth of salvation by grace, through faith, apart from legalistic adherence to the Mosaic law. He knew that by eating with the Gentiles and the Jews, Peter was implicitly affirming that salvation in Christ involved freedom from the Mosaic law. So in seeing Peter drawing back from eating with the Gentiles, when the Judaizers came on the scene, he knew exactly what Peter 
was doing. He knew that Peter was playing the hypocrite. You see, even though Peter had some years earlier come to the understanding that Gentiles are equally acceptable to God as Jews through faith in Christ, Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 35, out of fear for the Jewish party, the circumcision party, these men that came from the apostle James, as soon as he saw these men coming, Peter withdrew from the table and he was no longer eating with his Gentile brethren. He feared that the circumcision party might criticize him, eating with Gentiles. You see, this was so entrenched in the mindset of the Jews of that day that Gentiles, you just don't eat with Gentiles. And it's interesting that even one like Peter, and of course the apostles, they had to wrestle with this issue. They dealt with the matter of circumcision that was taken out of the way, but it seems that this matter of eating, the gent- eating with Gentiles was not settled in their minds, at least in Peter's mind. And as soon as Peter saw this party coming from James, he, we would say today, threw his Gentile brethren under the bus, so to speak. Fear drove Peter to play the hypocrite, which meant that he was not walking, as Paul says, in step with the truth of the gospel there as Paul puts it in verse 14. And there are a few observations we can make at this point. The first is this, that however spiritually mature one might be, there's no believer who is above sin, even such sins as cowardice and outright hypocrisy. And the fact, beloved, is this, that even though we are wonderfully saved by God's grace, each of us is prone to falling into sin and failing miserably. And to express shock whenever we see a believer stumbling as Peter did, I would say is to be naively ignorant of our hearts, our own hearts, and of our own potential to sin in this and other ways. How soberingly true it is that deep acquaintance with the word of God, deep acquaintance with the things of God, with the truths of God's word, is no foolproof guarantee against falling and stumbling. Here was a man, a great man of God, an elder, an apostle, and here was the apostle Peter falling into sin at this point, the sin of of hypocrisy. No wonder the word of God warns us in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We never are beyond the possibility of sinning, even though we might be advanced spiritually, even though we might be spiritually mature in the Lord. And then a second truth we gather here is that the sins particularly of leaders, the sins particularly of leaders tend to be contagious. Note verses 13 and 14. In consequence of Peter's hypocritical action, the Bible says here, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, that is along with Peter, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul says even a man like Barnabas fell into this trap of hypocrisy all because of Peter's actions. 
Indeed, the sins of leaders impact negatively, particularly on those they lead. At worst, their sin emboldens others in their wrongdoings, causing them to remain in their sins. As in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 14, where Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, laments that because the prophets of Jerusalem were given to sinning, here's what he says. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. Verse 15, from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone forth into all Israel. The sins, particularly of leaders, are contagious. It only took this action of Peter to induce other Jews to follow suit, to cause even Barnabas to be led astray by his hypocrisy. In a sobering way, this reminds us of the need to conform our lives to the gospel we preach because of the inevitable impact of our lives on others. We must never allow fear to allow us to compromise the truth of the gospel. We must never allow fear of what others think of us to cause us to compromise the truth of the gospel in any way. When we allow this to happen, we are in effect doing what? We are attempting to please man. And as Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, if we are seeking the approval of man, if we are seeking to please man, then we are no longer serving Christ. Now what we see in verse 14 is that Paul, notice here in verse 14, Paul was not at all hesitant in rebuking his fellow apostle for what he saw as his hypocrisy. He says in verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Gentile, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul here confronted Peter. And he confronted Peter because this sin, even though to natural human thinking, well, it's no big deal. He just kind of pretended a little. In the eyes of God, it's a big sin. And Paul knew very well that being hypocritical undercuts the power of the gospel. It compromises the truth of the gospel because, you see, Peter, by his hypocrisy, was sending a wrong message. He was sending a wrong message regarding the nature of the gospel. A wrong message as to what constitutes a true saving relationship with God. On account of his hypocrisy, he was undermining the gospel of grace. But beyond that, he was sending a wrong message as to who are the truly redeemed people of God. For by withdrawing from his Gentile brethren out of fear for those who were sent by the Apostle James, Peter, by his act of hypocrisy, was conveying and he was supporting the idea that they were second class in God's scheme of redemption. That was really the effect of his withdrawing from the table. He was saying in principle that the Gentiles were not on the same plane spiritually as were Jews, even though they had faith. In Christ. In this regard, Peter was undercutting the truth as regards the unity of believers in Christ. You know, someone as well said this that one can betray the truth of the gospel not only by preaching false doctrines, but also by engaging in false practices, particularly practices that fracture the unity of the church. What a sobering thought. 
We might not be purveyors of false doctrines, but by our lies, by our practice, by our conduct, we can be undermining the gospel. We can, as Peter did here, we can even undermine the doctrine of the unity of believers in Christ, irrespective of gender, irrespective of ethnicity, irrespective of social status. And do we not have the same kind of practice in our time, a fracturing of the unity of the church along the lines of social cliques, politics, ethnicity, and denominational idiosyncrasies? We have all kinds of divisions being perpetrated in the church in our time, undermining the gospel in the process. You see, one of the blessed effects of the gospel of the grace of God is that of making Jews and Gentiles one community, one family, one body in Christ. And the word of God makes it clear that those who are united to Christ by faith are children of God. Galatians chapter 3 verse 26, for you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus and being one in Christ irrespective of ethnicity, irrespective of social status. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 They are Abram's offspring, and because they are Abram's offspring, they are heirs of the promise given to Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 19, and here is how Paul celebrates, so he brings out the truth of the unity of God's people regardless of where they're from. He says to the Ephesian Christians, a Gentile body of Christians, he says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh a dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Here's what Paul says. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, here's the point. This was precisely the truth that Peter failed to affirm in practice. By withdrawing when he saw the circumcision party coming, out of fear, he played the hypocrite, and by his hypocrisy, he was undermining the truth of the gospel, which declares that all believers, irrespective of ethnicity, irrespective of social status, are one in Christ. We see then something of the harm, something of the outrage that Peter's duplicity was bringing 
to the gospel, which made it necessary for Paul to publicly rebuke him. And in defending the integrity of the gospel, Paul, we see in our text, went as boldly confronting this apostle, this great apostle. He censored one who, he described earlier, was one of the pillars of the church, one who was, by all accounts, the foremost of the apostles. In many respects, Peter was the de facto lead apostle of sorts. He was the one who had preached the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost. We see that in Acts 2.14 and following. It was to Peter that Jesus had given the keys of the kingdom, Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. And yet, here's the point. Paul did not regard Peter as being off-limits when it came to censoring him, when it came to rebuking him for his sin, for his sin of hypocrisy. Indeed, early in verse 6, he made it clear that whatever Peter, James, and John were in terms of status in the church, it made no difference to him since God shows no partiality. For Paul, the integrity, the honor of the gospel was what at stake. And here's a principle we can derive here. My friends, when it comes to the matter of censoring sin, when it comes to the matter of rebuking sin, we should not have favorites. We should not compromise because of who the individual might be. In this regard, Paul demonstrates the principle that without exception, everyone Christian leaders and church members alike are obliged to conform their lives to the doctrines, to the truths of the gospel. Everyone comes under the discipline of the local church. In fact, Paul will make it clear in First Timothy chapter 5, with respect to elders, Paul says there in verse 20, he says, those who sin rebuke before all that the rest may see, that the rest may hear, and fear. Now, having related to Galatians, how he censured Peter for his hypocrisy, Paul, in verses 15 through 21, outlines for the Galatians, Christians, the truth of the gospel as regards salvation. So, what Paul does here, Paul uses that incident between him and Peter as a teaching moment for the Galatian Christians. And he calls their attention to at least four truths. We'll stop in, in due order. We won't um, spend all afternoon. Uh, just bear that in mind. The first truth that Paul lays regarding the gospel of salvation is this. Very simple. Faith alone is absolutely essential for salvation. He makes the point that being saved stems not from what one achieves by way of works, but from what one receives by way of faith. He makes the point that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Look at verses 15 and 16. Paul says there, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And by the way, when he says we are not Gentile sinners, we must not take that in a literal way that Paul is saying we are not sinners. But Paul is actually using the lingo of the day that Gentiles were the sinners. Paul is being sort of, quote-unquote, sarcastic here. And he says, listen, you, Peter, we, you and I, we ourselves are Jews by birth. We are not Gentile sinners. 
Yet we know, he says, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is saying to the Galatian church, look, Peter in principle undercut that truth, he compromised on that truth, and the fact is, we are saved by faith apart from nothing else. Nothing else must be added to faith in Christ. The hymn writer Horatius Bonar was right and targeted the truth of the free gospel of grace apart from works when he penned these words. He says this, Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or can or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine, no meaner blood will do. No strength save that, that which is divine can bear me safely through. Second point, the second truth Paul lays before the Galatian Christians is that the gospel of salvation by faith alone is no explanation or excuse for sinning. The gospel of salvation by faith alone is no excuse or explanation for sinning. Now, from time to time, you'll hear people say, well, listen, this gospel of yours, this gospel that we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, is only going to lead to antinomianism. It's going to really give liberty to sin. And this was a charge Paul's critics were actually leveling against him in Romans chapter 6 when they misquoted him as saying that the free justifying grace of God towards sinners provides license for believers to continue in sin. You'll see that suggestion or the hint of that charge in Romans 3, 5 through 8, Romans 6 and verse 1. I would submit to you there's a suggestion here that this was precisely the charge that the Judaizers were bringing against Paul at this point. They evidently were saying, look, this doctrine of yours, Paul, that you're teaching, that one is justified by faith apart from the law, this teaching that faith in Christ alone can save really is promoting sin, the practice of sin. It seems that we're saying that because the Galatian Christians were not adhering to the Mosaic law of circumcision, they were in the process sinning. And here's what they added. They actually suggested that Christ was responsible for it. And what does Paul say? Paul, say, Paul said, no, 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 no. He makes a point that ceasing from observing the law, so as to be justified by faith in Christ alone is not a sin. Just because one ceases from the works of the law as a way of finding salvation, and just because one places faith and trust in Christ apart from works, he says that is not a sin. And furthermore, it does not make Christ a minister or promoter of sin. 
To the contrary, Paul argues that if one, and this is very important, we know, look at what Paul does here. Paul, to the contrary, suggests that if one professes faith in Christ alone for salvation and then returns to the legalities of religious rituals in the hope of being saved, that effectively makes one a transgressor, a sinner. Let me put it in other words, simple, in a simple way. Paul is saying, ceasing from the law in order to be justified by faith in Christ alone is not a sin. It does not make Christ responsible for sin. The sin rather comes, how does one become a transgressor? One becomes a transgressor when after embracing faith in Christ alone, then turns back to the works of the law. He says that is what constitutes sin. In such a situation, one would only prove oneself to be a sinner. Here's here's words in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Here it comes. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is this, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild, here it comes, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And do you notice here, there's something of sensitivity, even though he rebuked Peter, there's something of sensitivity to Peter. Because what he does, he personalizes it and he relates it to himself. He says, if I do it, <laughs> it will make me a transgressor. If I turn back to the law after having been justified by faith alone, then I make myself a transgressor. In the third place, Paul presents to the Galatian Christians the truth that salvation by faith in Christ, apart from the law, is transformational. You see what he's doing here? It does not promote sin. It does not give license to sin. Rather, it is transformational. Salvation by faith in Christ alone, apart from the law, is transformational. In other words, it changes one's heart and life. It promotes godly, Christ-centered living. Look at verses 19 and 20. Paul, in fact, cites his own experience of the transforming power of the gospel. He says, therefore, through the law... I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is Paul's point here as we close? What is he saying here? If you go back to chapter 1 verse 14... Paul had mentioned how that before he became saved by faith in Christ, he says there how that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries and that he was so extremely zealous for his ancestral traditions. Now what he's saying here in Galatians 2, 19 and 20 is that for him, He came to the understanding. He came to the appreciation. In fact, he came to an experience of the truth that being rightly related to God is not a matter of fleshly religious performances. Rather, being right with God is to enter into a living, vital union with Christ, a living, vital relationship with Christ.
that Christ, in whom he is united, with whom he is united in his death and his resurrection, is now the master passion of his life. In fact, he's saying now, Christ has made all the difference in my life. Indeed, as a result of his faith in Christ, Paul's life was radically altered, was radically changed, so that whereas he was a hater, once a hater of the gospel, Paul became a passionate, ardent preacher of the very gospel he hated. What a transformation. The lesson here, beloved, is this, that in the end, there's nothing that's that more attests to the authenticity and truthfulness of the gospel than the powerful evidence of a changed, transformed life. What a way, I think, to end this Reformation Sunday. Because very often there are people who seem to think that it's all a matter of amassing the doctrines becoming very cerebral. But Paul says there in Galatians 2, 19 and 20 that the gospel really is designed to transform our lives. Christ becomes the ruling passion of our lives. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. May God bless these truths to our hearts. May we champion the gospel, live the gospel, May we delight ourselves in the glories of the free saving grace of God.